everyone. Siobhan Chapman here. Welcome to the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining us for the conversation, I'm glad to welcome back Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable and Impact Investing Strategist for the Americas from the UBS Chief Investment Office. We're also fortunate to have with us today from our partners at Trillium Asset Management, Jonas Cron. Jonas serves as the Chief Advocacy Officer. Amantia and Jonas, it's great to have you both with us for this month's episode of the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast. Thank you for spending time with our listeners, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thank you for having us. Of course, of course. Amantia, welcome back. You start this month's Sustainable Investing Perspectives report noting that a drought in India could be a risk to my iPhone, of all things. Can you explain to us what the connection is there? (laughs) Yes, of course. Happy to. Um, So last month, um, the tech giant Apple shifted some of its iPhone 14 production from China over to India. Um, This happened indirectly through one of its major suppliers, Foxconn, which in partnership with uh, an Indian mining group um, started production in in the Chennai region for um, the production of the iPhone for the domestic Indian market. Um, The contract between the the, the Taiwanese uh, manufacturer Foxconn, as well as the, the mining group, um, jointly committed to invest uh, 19.6 billion dollars to set up a semiconductor and display fabrication plant in India's uh, Gujarat region. Region. Now, um, from the perspective of sort of uh, the, the kind of the domestic economy, as well as from India as an emerging market, um, we're thinking of India here as a front runner among emerging markets that is clearly trying to establish this itself as a global manufacturing hub. And as such, the Indian government has um, has been uh, incentivizing companies to to undertake these types of investments. Um, this type of uh, leveling up from India in manufacturing may seem beneficial from that perspective, yet as we look at this development, what we've highlighted is a potential risk that uh, needs to be considered by investors here. At present, uh, the Gujarat region um, it possesses only 2% of the country's water resources, and groundwater accounts for about 24% of the state's total water availability. Why does this matter? Well. In something like semiconductor um, operations in particular, uh, water use and water intensity is very important in in the running of these operations. And therefore, it actually is um, structurally important to, uh, from from a risk perspective, for us to understand where this investment from the semiconductor companies is going to happen and, and will there be enough water supply to meet their needs. Now, in, in this particular, um, Relationship, as has been reported, um, the, this project is likely to benefit from significant government subsidies on both semiconductor-grade water as well as on reliable energy. Um, and so, in this particular case, uh, it seems to, that, the, that the conversation has been covered here. However, as we think broadly about this issue of water risk, as we think of the water scarcity in the region that I just noted, um, we do wonder if the energy policy and the hydrology that are in place are enough to, to reverse the groundwater depletion in the region. Um, the groundwater table, according to official government data, is, uh, is declining year on year, uh, which, which suggests that this is unsustainable. And the question that we're asking is, while this project may be covered by itself, um, are investors and companies thinking about um, these water-related risks that are existing, given, ex- given increasing populations, increasing industrial activity, and at what point do corporates and investors have to bear this risk? This is great. I, you know, one of the things I think that I'm really seeing here, and I'm just picking up on some of these points of risk and supply and government, is how 
pervasive water-related risks are. You know, by one account, a majority of the companies in the four major indices, the S&P 500, the Russell 2000, the MSCI World, and the MSCI Emerging Market, are in medium or high water risk industries. And this is everything from, you know, I think things that people probably think naturally, like food and beverage or household durables, um, but also, you know, construction materials, paper and forest products, uh, oil and gas, energy equipment, metals and mining, uh, you know, water utilities, obviously, uh, electric, and, and many other industries, including, as, as, as we've been talking about here, semiconductors. And so for, you know, an investor like Trillium, there's, you know, this can be incredibly complicated, and I can see how this would be very overwhelming for many investors. And so um, there are some ways, I think, that we try to think about this, and, and there's actually some really good tools out there that have been developed over time, including um, one from uh, an organization called Series, which has done some really good work in putting together a, a toolkit um, for investors to be thinking about water. And basically, if I can sort of sort of boil it down to three major points, I think it's sort of a helpful way to take this this elephant, really, and sort of turn it into some bite-sized chunks. You know, there's understanding the risks, um, understanding the business aspects of these risks, and then understanding at a company level or a portfolio level, you know, how to assess those risks. And so what I mean by those three different points are, you know, understanding the risks can be things like, you know, is there competition for water in this region? You know, is there a lack of climate-ready infrastructure? You know, how much of the power generation is dependent on water? Uh, and then also thinking about water quality, you know, cumulative impacts from pollution and other other sources, as well as things like social license to operate. You know, you got to think about the stakeholders that are going to be dependent on these similar water sources. And also, as we've been talking about here, weak government oversight or whether it's strong government oversight and then how those all play into the risk. And these can really lead to, I guess, uh, roughly break down to three business risks. So market and operational risks. Um, this is both sort of supply side and the ability to say whether a product can be produced. So semi-chips, uh, semiconductor chips like we're talking about. But also on the demand side, you know, consumer demand, end users, how is this going to uh, uh, manifest itself in terms of operational risks or market risks? There's reputational risks, and that sort of goes back to this notion of social license and the communities and stakeholders that are going to be in these regions. And then lastly, there's also regulatory and legal risks. And is there a robust you know, system in place from a regulatory point of view, or is it very weak, or is it in transition right now? And then along those lines as well, you know, we're starting to see stakeholders using legal tools as a way of enforcing their rights and so understanding how that can manifest itself as a business risk. And then lastly, just to sort of wrap up here, assessing the risks uh, for the company. How is dependent is the company on water? Where in the supply chain? Is it an input? Is it wastewater? Is it a product? Is it an end of life? Uh, similarly, water security. How secure is the um, company's water supply in terms of physically, regulatory, um, social license, again, I think is really important in a particular ge geography on the ground. And then lastly, water resilience. You know, what is the company doing to maintain its resilience to the business risks related to water? You know, are they using different kind of uh, hedging instruments? Are they developing stakeholder relationships? Are they investing in local uh, watersheds and infrastructure to improve that? So I think these are some ways that, you know, investors can start thinking about these and sort of create a template for how they're going to 
uh, work, uh, be able to analyze these questions. Last really quick point is that the Sustainable Development Goals is becoming an increasingly important framework, and just to mention that the Sustainable Development Goal number six is the human right to water and sanitation, so that's another framework for folks to be thinking about. Yeah, and I think uh, just jumping back in here, I think I, uh, all of this analysis would be fantastic. And as I think of, you know, what's the takeaway here? What is a um, investor, an asset owner um, that, that is interested in either thinking about water as a risk or thinking about that SDG um, objective that you just mentioned, Jonas? And the takeaways are either you go with, with an investment strategy that is explicitly um, recognizing these risks for companies and is tilting uh, a portfolio in a way that accounts for this, or, or more likely, and or, <laughs> you go for an investment strategy that is looking for those companies that are exposed to the water scheme from an opportunity set. So what are those solution providers that are helping address this, this challenge of scarcity over the longer term? Um, and I think on, on this podcast, for our usual listeners, uh, this is often kind of the, the, the two sides of the same coin that can come together in a portfolio. These sustainability topics that we all experience, like a drought or a flood and how they're relevant to investors, makes for a very interesting discussion. So moving forward, another directly connected topic is that of food insecurity. Amantia, global food prices measured by the Food Price Index have recently come off from an all-time high in March of 2022. Are we trending in the right direction now? Sure, good question. And you're very right that as we talk about water security or water scarcity, uh, food insecurity, food security, that's the other uh, conversation that really has been top of mind recently. Um, part of the reason why that's been top of mind is, as you're noting, uh, Siobhan, the, the global food prices have been extremely elevated. And yes, they have recently come off the all-time highs in March of 2022. But I would not say that we are out of the woods uh, quite yet, so to say. Um, low, lower prices have been driven by easing global supply chain disruptions. Um, in part, this was thanks to um, the UN brokered grain corridor that was created for Ukraine that allowed uh, additional exports uh, through select ports and, and improved availability to the northern hemisphere, which helped with uh, bringing kind of prices down. But even with, with those types of breakthroughs that we've seen in recent months, um, the, the price system here is, is continues to be at levels that have never been seen in the 20, 30 years history of this index. So in the short, as we think about short-term and longer-term kind of dynamics of where we sit with regards to food security, we know that in the short term, um, one of the kind of negative factors that we see affecting food security is the presence and existence of uh, overall high energy prices, which are translating into higher production costs for areas like chemicals, like fertilizers, like animal feeds that go into these supply chains. Now, in the longer term, there are risks as well. We're thinking of risks around geopolitics, climate change, population growth, which will continue to bring challenges as, as countries around the world are faced with these food security issues. Um, if we think about the increasing frequency of expected uh, kind of weather events and increasing uh, expected severity of weather events like droughts, like hurricanes and flooding, all of these uh, can have a negative impact on food security. Now, what does this mean? 
it's not all kind of bleak. It, what it means is that there's both, on the one hand, an urgent need for investment uh, in solutions, especially as we project forward and we'll look at these longer-term risks around food security and food prices. Um, and two, it also means, you know, conversely, that there's an opportunity here for those companies that are innovating uh, in specific areas to help address some of these systemic challenges in the way that we produce and consume food in the world. So some of these um, ideas include areas like seed science, like automation, like regenerative agriculture practices, precision agriculture, which uh, can help address the current challenges and help tap into this growing market for sustainable solutions that, that can re-envision the way that food is produced and delivered. In addition, as, as we're thinking about these kind of very specific ideas around precision agriculture, even thinking a little more broadly around the value chain uh, and, and food systems can promote outcomes that, that can be associated with more of a circular economy. So, so thinking about issues like packaging, like distribution, like food waste in particular, um, will also be sort of important areas for us to invest in, areas of opportunity um, that will help uh, mitigate some of these these, these longer-term challenges and bring work us more towards food security versus insecurity. So what's interesting is that we're having a conversation about environmental topics like food or water, but what we're really discussing is how people are impacted and why investors should pay attention. Staying with the people topic, you noted a proposal by the European Commission this month that is focused directly on corporate behavior and human rights. Can you tell us some more about that? Yeah, of course. And when it comes to sustainability, everything connects. Uh, so, so it's very difficult for us to disentangle people and planet. Um, and policy, which is often what, what comes next. Um, so specifically, the, the proposal that you referred to, we published about it in this month's Sustainable Investing Perspectives, and it's um, a, a proposal uh, uh, issued by the European Union, the European Commission, uh, a few weeks ago, who, who set out to ban the sale and import of goods that are produced with forced labor into the European Union market. So this proposal, which is now going to go through the relatively long European Union process of, of debating, discussion, and it hasn't been ratified yet, but if it were to ratify and if it were to come into force, it would be around 2025 at the earliest. Yet, even though as we're looking at this somewhat you know, midterm kind of impact here, we'd note that if it were to come into force, impact all companies that serve the EU market, so not just EU domicile companies, um, but every company around the world, which is why it matters for investors to start thinking about the proposal. It also matters because uh, the definition of um, goods that are produced with forced labor um, is, is a tricky one, and this is a problem that is um, a, a, a very uh, thorny problem for companies and investors to address. According to the international labor organization, uh, which just recently updated its estimates, um, the number of people that are working in conditions of extreme labor exploitation um, around the world is around uh, 28 million people, just under. 
of whom 17 million people are estimated to be exploited specifically in the private sector. So these people are likely to be working against their will in some of the supply chains that reach consumers in the EU, also in the US and around the world, really. Um, the challenge with this number is that it's a very acute problem. However, it's a very dispersed problem, uh, dispersed almost equally around different regions of the world, which makes it challenging for companies to have to create visibility to identify the problem and, and set up policies in order to eradicate it. Now, something being challenging doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile tackling. If anything, it may be just the opposite. Um, and, and it's an area that we're paying attention to. We know that many investors focused on sustainability are paying attention to. And now, in part, thanks to this type of regulation, um, there, there's an additional uh, impetus here to start investing and thinking about the visibility, those solutions, and taking into account how labor um, at all stages of supply chains is treated because it can come back as a significant risk for a company um, if, if, they're, if they don't have the visibility and if they're not addressing it. So, Jonas, how do you identify human and labor rights risk in a portfolio, and what does engagement with companies look like? You know, when we're thinking about labor rights, um, you know, it's really you know, it's a question of human rights from, from our point of view, ultimately. And, um, you know, the, the, the number of different ways in which workers can um, be challenged in terms of working conditions and pay and benefits um, is numerous, and it also goes all the way down, just like Amadio was talking about, to forced labor. And one of the things that we've sort of been thinking about and, and learning more about and starting to put into, into application through our engagement program is much more around freedom of association and collective bargaining rights. Um, and again, you know, as Amadio was talking about, the ILO, um, you know, has a set of global standards that many companies have subscribed to um, already. And in those commitments is a commitment to not interfere um, with freedom of association and with collective bargaining rights that, that workers have. And this can be incredibly important because when workers are able to organize, they're able to sort of, well, they're definitely able to stand up for what they think needs to be addressed in their workplace. Um, and so there's not as much of a, problem that you can sometimes run into where investors are sort of pushing down particular solutions and it's more of a bottom-up workers are able to identify for themselves what are the issues that they need to be, um, that they want to have addressed. And so in looking at that, we actually just recently put out a paper um, in July talking about the investor case for supporting worker organizing rights. And it really comes down to about six different factors. Um, and, and if I could just briefly sort of go through those and talk a little bit about the evidence that's behind them and how all of that informs our engagement with companies. So, one, there's greater worker productivity in firms with collective agreements. Um, and so, for example, one study found that when you have an increase in union density of 1%, that's actually going to raise overall firm productivity by 1.7 to 1.8%. A related issue is actually worker health and safety. So improved worker health and safety um, actually increases when unionization rates are, so, are, are, are higher. And actually worker safety looks like it improves about 2.8%, or actually there's a decrease of 2.8% in on-the-job deaths with companies that have um, better worker health and safety rec uh, records. Now, prioritization of health and safety and well-being in the workforce, um, has been shown in some studies that are benchmarked against the S&P 500 
that those companies outperform the market by 2% a year with a weighted return on equity of about 264% compared with the S&P 500's return of 243% over a 10-year period of time. So again, there's these compelling business reasons, and it's on top of the values point of view in terms of uh, supporting worker rights. You also see, uh, and this is a third point, increased worker satisfaction and decreased worker turnover. This is incredibly important because we know that companies spend about 20% of an employee's annual salary to replace that person, the serious cost that they have to take into consideration. And at least in the United States, and I think this is starting to happen more globally, that um, that unions are, are at, uh, at record levels of popularity in the U.S., and that 42% of Americans have expressed that they are less likely to purchase from a company uh, that is attempting to stop its employees from unionizing. So there is a uh, reputational risk for, for companies. Um, again, picking up on, on the point of the ILO, there are legal norms and standards that uh, have been developed over decades, um, and that I think business and investors are increasingly starting to understand that those both hard and soft law norms are incredibly important to business prosperity. And so simply holding companies that have made these commitments to the ILO um, uh, accountable to those commitments is important uh, in and of itself. And then lastly, uh, from a point of view of racial or gender equity, you know, so many companies now really understand that having diverse workforces are important um, to their, uh, not only their financial prosperity, but to their contributions to society more generally. And we've seen that uh, in workplaces where uh, there's unionization, that um, that there's greater equity and parity uh, between pay, both in terms of uh, historically underrepresented minorities and white workers, as well as men and women. So, for example, when it comes to gender, non-unionized working women earn about 78 cents on a dollar paid uh, to a non-unionized working male. However, women who work in unionized workplaces earn $0.94 for every dollar that is paid to unionized men. So the the equity there is much much closer. So with this sort of basis of knowledge, we've been engaging a number of companies over the uh, past year and will be continuing to do so, including engagements at Starbucks and Apple, where we are really encouraging those companies not to interfere with um, uh, worker rights organizing collectively bargain. Most companies have made commitments to the ILO, um, and they actually proudly hold up those commitments. And so at one level, all we're asking them to do is simply to live up to the commitments that they've made, that they have made uh, and, and have been on, uh, they've been on, on the record supporting for, for many, many years. So those engagements um, have so far involved uh, uh, Groups of investors actually communicating to the company in the trillions of dollars. Uh, in the case of Starbucks, over three trillion dollars in assets has uh, engaged the company, asking them to um, to not interfere with with worker rights. And we've now actually moved into the stage of shareholder proposals, uh, where we will be providing other investors an opportunity to weigh in through the uh, shareholder proposal process at the company's annual meetings in early 2023. So I should probably stop there, um, but uh, those are two examples in terms of an engagement uh, based on the understanding and the information that we've been developing over the last uh, few years. 
Well, Jonas and Amantia, thank you for spending some time with our listeners today on the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast and for sharing with us your perspective on the themes that we covered. Again, today we have been joined by Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable and Impact Investing Strategist for the Americas from the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Jonas Cron, the Chief Advocacy Officer at Trillium Asset Management. The latest edition of the monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast is now available on UBS.com forward slash CIO. For clients of UBS, please reach out to your financial advisors if you would like to receive a copy directly. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.